welcome to Slumber Party Cinema Club, a podcast for the movies that you've seen a thousand times and the silly and serious conversations they start. I am one of your hosts, Katie. And I am Kate. And Katie, I am gobsmacked by how amazing that intro sounds. Yeah, I actually took us like a year to write a professional intro instead of just starting and being like, uh, I'm Katie. (laughs) And I'm Kate. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I feel so much more official now. It is hard to believe it's been a year since we started this podcast. Yeah, we kind of just missed our birthday, I think, but that's okay. Maybe I'll post about it actually on Twitter or something after we get done recording. But Kate, how has it been uh, having a podcast for a whole year? Man, you know, I know that we haven't, you know, necessarily done it every single week, which I think is just fine, but it's been fun. It's been, it's been nice to have a reason to go back and rewatch movies. Um, Like, you know, I I do, I try to watch a hundred movies I've never seen before in a year, which means Mm -hmm. I always feel kind of guilty when I decide to take a couple hours and watch a movie I've already seen um, before because it could be time I could be spending toward my 100 goal. And this podcast has really been like very much like, a, no, but you have to rewatch Mad Max Fury Road. We're talking about it this week, you know? And we've gotten to see some movies that, you know, you or I haven't seen before that you've seen or I've seen. Yeah, that's been amazing too. Just like opening my aperture because quite honestly, I'm realizing how few teen movies I've really seen. There are so many that people have mentioned to me that we should do an episode on. I'm like, I have no clue what movie you're talking about just because it was not something I was into back then or I was just sort of missed that that era where that was like a big thing. So it's been nice catching up and filling those gaps in my my movie knowledge. So can I bang out a couple Slumber Party Cinema Club podcast statistics for you? Absolutely. In a year, we have produced 30, yeah, 33 episodes. Ooh. And that's, and that's also counting a few of the uh, two-parters. Okay. So that's a little bit more than that if you space out the two-parters. And we have also had... 545 plays of our podcast. So for being, you know, a little bitty indie podcast in the sea of movie podcasts, I think that's pretty darn good. I'm I'm pretty impressed with that. I think we can do better. I'm I'm saying let's uh let's aim for a full thousand by uh, the end of the year if we can. Yeah, I think we can do that. And obviously you guys can help us by uh sharing our podcast on your social media, on your Instagram story, tagging us, tagging us on movies you like and would want us to talk about. And, you know, just inviting your friends because everyone's welcome to the slumber party. Absolutely. And we do have like, you know, I know we have a growing listener base that's very loyal to us. Um, Just some people I can think of. Jessica uh, often texts me when she's listening to an episode. You know, we've we've got Angela and I think, Katie, you've got your friend Brandon, uh, Mm -hmm. my friend Franny. There's Jennifer. So many people out there just say thank you to for for taking a listen and taking a chance and enjoying enjoying the banter. (laughs) Yeah. And uh scobes i believe listens to us not in order but so who knows when he'll hear this (laughs) you know there is something i i have to admit like i think i've mentioned before on this podcast that since january i've gotten into full rupaul drag race mode and i can binge a season in two days uh, at this point um very easy for me to do and i have not been watching them in order which unfortunately does mean that i get spoiled on who wins sometimes but sometimes you just 
you see that there's a snatch game episode and you just want to watch that instead of having to go through the whole thing. So I totally understand the jumping around. Uh, luckily, I don't think we, we've done too many spoiler things for our lives uh, on any of these episodes. We're just yapping about movies. Wait, so do you jump around the episodes within a season or you're jumping around the seasons? I'm jumping around the seasons, but also I may have looked up a full hour long compilation of the Snatch Game uh, like bits that they've done. Okay. That's my favorite part of the show. Yeah, I feel like I never watched that that show, but it's been a long time since I I was never super into like reality competition shows. The only one I really watched was back in the day was uh Project Runway. Mm, yeah, see I I do not have any time for any kind of reality competition show. I used to have Hell's Kitchen on my back. I used to have MasterChef with my family cuz like that was our thing. And then as soon as I didn't have to watch them anymore, I sort of stopped. But RuPaul, man. Oof. And some of the some of it is a problem. Some of it is horrible, and we have grown so much as a country. And it's nice knowing RuPaul has grown as a person since some of the episodes in the early days. But not quite as cringy as going back and watching America's Next Top Model, which I also was like obsessed with when I was like 15, 16. Oh you know, my right god! The time that your body image is really everything you're thinking of, uh, and so like <laughs> it's kind of it. it this. God, I would be in a much different place had I been watching Drag Race instead of America's Next Top Model as a teenager. My God, America's Next Top Model. I watched that sort of like vicariously because I used to watch The Soup on E! With... Oh yeah, and they would always recap some of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I, I would see things. But yeah, oh, I guess I do also watch, you know, Great British Bake Off. But that's yeah, so but that's gentle. not a competition. That's just a friendly, yeah. let's show off what we can do kind of thing. Yeah, it doesn't count. Yeah. But anyways, speaking of the uh, road we have traveled, it is Pride. Still, while we're recording this, it'll be probably just after Pride ends. We will when... have officially, I think, probably gone all of Pride Month without with just one episode. And that was on The Little Mermaid. We wanted to do, you know, a movie relevant to Pride We tried last week and it really ended up just being like an hour and a half conversation that Kate and I just had sort of as friends. So we decided we were not going to share that audio with everyone. If you Um, pay us, we'll release it. It'll be like the max fund drive bonuses that they do sometimes. Like if you we will (laughs) release the episode. You can hear us meander around things. You can hear Katie talking about statistics that she's looked up. You can hear me issue a heartfelt apology to my mother. Uh, So many things happened that you don't need to worry about. Right. But um, so we're uh, taking it back again today. And today's movie we are talking about in celebration of Pride Month is the 1996 film The Birdcage. I love this movie so much. And if you want to talk about feeling okay to rewatch a movie... I was so excited to be able to sit down and watch this movie again, knowing we were going to talk about it. Oh, hell yeah. This is like a movie we watch all the time in our house. It's a comfort movie. We always like to play the game. If you recasted this movie now, like if they remade the movie now, who would you cast in the roles? And it's so fucking hard because Robin Williams and Nathan Lane are just like, absolutely pitch perfect in what they do it's so hard to figure out who would be able to match that perfection so while we're taking it back to kick it off Kate can I remind you a little bit so this movie came out in 1996 it's about you know two men who are a couple 
uh, Robin Williams and Nathan Lane. Nathan Lane's character is a drag queen at uh, the club that uh, Robin Williams owns. And they've, you know, been living together and been in a relationship for many, many years. And they even have a son together that was Robin Williams's character's biological son. And he has come back home to let his parents know that he is getting married. Not only is he getting married to lovely little baby Calista Flockhart, her parents are ultra conservative state senators or not state senators, senators for their state. Not Yeah. Her father is an ultra yeah. conservative, like leading the family first kind of uh, legislation. Uh, <laughs> conservative. Exactly. Um, uh, legislator. Yeah. I believe he is a senator. Yeah. So being gay in 1996 was a little bit different. So I have a few facts for you to remind our listeners, you know, what it was like back then, back in the nineties, almost fucking 20 years ago, Jesus Christ. And, you know, maybe some of our younger listeners who weren't kind of old enough to remember queer culture then and its acceptance or lack thereof from the mainstream. So, well, well, honey, I mean, your co-host was five. Yeah. 19. (laughs) Yeah. 1996. I was like eight years old, eight or nine. I had a few experiences where like I was sort of aware of gay people then not necessarily in a negative way, but I did know that it was something that made some people uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. I did not quite understand why. My kid brain could not wrap the head around it. Anyways, so what was it like to be gay in 1996? Well, 1996 was the year before Ellen came out on TV, Ellen DeGeneres, you know, Mm -hmm. beloved talk show host, maybe not so beloved now, but, you know, had a good run for a long time. And a pioneer. With coming out on her sitcom. Yeah. 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 She came out on her sitcom and in real life, you know, she's her show essentially got canceled because she came out. And also, interestingly, her coming out affected Laura Dern's career because I have um, no idea. Yeah. Because I remember reading this not too long ago, like she was on the show as a woman that Ellen dates. Interesting. Yeah. Well, she's always been an ally. And awesome and gorgeous. We Um, love Laura Dern on this podcast. Yes. So yeah, so that was the year before Ellen came out on TV. That was three years after Don't Ask, Don't Tell became a thing. So, which was overturned in 2010. But, you know, if you remember, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was sort of the military standard of being where it's like, don't tell us you're a homosexual and... We won't ask if you're a homosexual because really we don't want homosexuals in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also so, need people in the military. So we guess it's okay as long as we don't know about it. Right. And same thing with like any quote unquote act, homosexual acts happening on bases and boot camp, you know, wherever. So yeah. So that was three years after that was like signed into law or whatever. And then that was overturned in 2010. And then it was the same year that President Clinton, so President Bill Clinton, husband of Hillary Clinton, stone blue Democrat, right? Mm-hmm. President Bill Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act into law. Guess what that does, Kate? 
That pretty much um, is that gay people can't get married, right? Yeah, pretty much. Um, so on a federal level, the law defines marriage as a legal union between one man and one woman, and that no state is required to recognize a same-sex marriage from out of state. Yep. It's it's crazy how people's politics uh, change. <laughs> well, I seem or, to recall, though, also, because, um, you know, when we talk about the history of this, 2008, I believe, was... No, it wasn't 2008. Sorry. My apologies. I'm trying to remember what year the U.S. Supreme Court overturned it and made it so that gay marriage had to be legal. And I seem to recall that was under the Obama administration, correct? Yeah, I want to say 2014. But meanwhile, we know that Obama was on record early in his career, not committed 100% to the idea of gay marriage. So people grow, people change. And it's important, I think, to give them the space to do it, but be very real about where, where they've been and the journey. Cause I think it's not just, you know, something that's fair to do and be like, Hey, listen, like you think that they're an icon now, but wait till I tell you about that person that Mark Wahlberg like beat up, you know, like, yeah, uh, or slash murdered actually. And it wasn't a, a racial hate crime in a lot of people's eyes, but like, you know, like looking at, at, at just the history and the context, but also recognizing that people can change and as long as they're changing in the direction we need them to, we're good. It's, it's, you know, people can change and we need to give them the opportunity. Right. Yeah. I, I don't want to like necessarily sound critical. I guess when I say it's interesting how politics change, you know, politics is such a game where sometimes you give and sometimes you get, and sometimes you believe quote unquote one thing and then believe another, but yeah, that is what it was like to be gay in America in 1996. Also, fun fact that I just learned about Florida when I was like looking some of this stuff up. Florida essentially, because you know, Florida's doing really great these days. But Florida basically had their own defense of marriage act that, like, I want to say is still on the books. So essentially, you know, if you know gay marriage ever got overturned on a federal level, like, you know, boom. Yeah. Well, it's very much like the abortion trigger laws, right? The as soon mm-hmm. as the court says it's okay, this law goes back into effect. And unfortunately, we know from transcripts that that is that gay marriage is also on the the docket for potentially being overturned by this this court. Um, yeah, along with interracial marriage, which is fascinating to me, seeing as one of the biggest the, the person who even said this and issued this opinion saying that they're going to target these things next is a man in an interracial marriage. I was going to say, Clarence Thomas, you are married to a white lady. Mm-hmm. But of course, the um, laws don't apply to him. We know this. His mother is living in a massive house. Maybe Clarence Thomas, like, wants to get divorced, but, like, can't say it. So it's like, oh, <laughs> we can't be married anymore. Oh, <laughs> marriage is illegal. So, you know, they said that, like, there's that movie Divorce Italian Style, which I have. It's a 1960s flick, and it's a black comedy in that divorce Italian style means murdering your spouse because there's no divorce in Italy, at least in the 1960s, there wasn't, but this is like Mm -hmm. divorce legislation style. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Divorce judicial Um, style. Yeah. Which by the way, since getting engaged, I had a full on discussion with Kyle that if he ever wants to like get divorced or leave me, please just do it. Don't murder me. Oh yeah. That's good. Well, you are a true kind person. So that would make sense. You had that conversation. Yeah. And, you know, you hear those freaking cases all the time, people Mm -hmm. murdering their spouses because they're having an affair and they want to be with this person instead, or they just don't want to be with their 
why why I don't understand anyways that's not what this is about it's like extra steps quite honestly yeah and like I mean if you just divorce someone you don't have to worry about getting caught you don't have like that anxiety you don't have to like look yourself in the mirror every day and think I killed a person yeah but doesn't a lot of it come down to either psychopathy or finance because like a lot of it seems to be like I just didn't want to have to you know give my ex this percentage of my income or this percentage of my wealth. I, yeah, I think it's mostly like finance. Cause in a lot of these cases too, it's like, oh, I also get life insurance money if, you know, they die. So bring on the house. You know, yeah. But whatever. But anyway, really veered off the path again, but I do want to go back to what we we're talking about with uh, politicians that see the light somehow and yeah. recognize that it's, it's important, um, you know, to grant, rights to everyone and you know i that that's what happens in the birdcage <laughs> like we see yeah. the story breaks down to like at least from one angle of it the story breaks down to conservative republican i assume i would assume it's the republican party but conservative oh yeah 100 percent. they love reagan I yeah that's right they love Reagan in it but like conservative experiences one evening of their life or their lives because there's two of them in this case and mm-hmm. completely changes their minds and becomes more accepting and tolerant at least that's what we're led to believe by the way that the movie ends yeah and like maybe not such bad people to begin with like definitely you know this was definitely before the incredibly polarizing era that began, you know, with the 2016 election that has kind of been commonplace now, where it's like, how do I say this without making anyone potentially mad? Basically, the line of thought that like, from a liberal point of view, that is, if you're a Republican, you're a hateful piece of shit. And, you know, conservatives thinking that like, liberals are socialist sinners or whatever. Yeah. Socialist pedophiles. Yeah. Which, oh God, don't even get me started on that. I know we're going to get into another danger zone of veering off the movie, but yeah, it's, it's just an interesting, you know, thing to consider. So I know that you mentioned that this was life in 1996, but I do want to remind you that the birdcage is actually a remake of a movie that was released in 1978. Yes. So, and that was, it was a, Surprise, it was not a United States made film. Um, 1978, uh, you think 1996 was bad. 1978 was, it was also not the best time, not the worst time, but not the best time. And so there was a movie called La, Fo- um, La Cage of Folle that came out and it was, uh, I believe it was French and uh, directed by Edouard Molinaro. And it was the highest grossing foreign film in the United States that year. I'm glad that you said the name of the film because I was like, I know that I know the name of the film, but my French is terrible. So I don't want to say. And the only way I know is because I remember the year, I think La Caja Full, they turned it into a Broadway musical and yeah. Kelsey was in it. And I remember watching the Tonys where they couldn't stop talking about La Caja Full. I am a little bit familiar with the Broadway musical and I just always like, you know, refer to it as La Cage. So La Cage, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think my mom calls it La Cage, but La Cage is a completely different movie. So <laughs> the U.S. version, though, is so delightful. And you mentioned it earlier in the, the, the cast is just perfection. And I think it was it's interesting. So in the 1990s, there was there were three movies that really stand out to me that sort of if if I were to put together a box set 
mm-hmm. it would be the birdcage, Priscilla, queen of the desert, and Tu Wong Fu. Thank you for everything, Julie Newman. Oh, tu Wong Fu is another comfort movie. I love that movie so much. And it was just this really interesting trilogy of films that we saw. And I agree. I love all three of them. But it was just this interesting trilogy of films that we saw that came out. And while now I think that the conversation has shifted that we would have more of an issue with it. In the 90s, the conversation was at the point where having the man's man of Patrick Swayze, uh, you know, in in Tu Wong Fu, of um, uh, Guy Pierce in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Weaving and Priscilla Queen of the Deserts too, and Terrence Stamp, um, and then Robin Williams, who you know, known for his comedy at this point, has done so many incredible stand-ups. Big hairy dude, you know. Yeah, being a gay man and having these, you know, for lack of a better word, macho uh, actors in Hollywood that were sort of like being very selective in in being in these roles, I think said a lot to, did a lot to, to advance the conversation. I think now if we looked at this and you said about recasting, like if they made the birdcage with, I don't know, Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr. for lack of a better like combination, like most people Mm -hmm. were like, nah, (laughs) no, we could have hired gay actors. It would have been fine guys. (laughs) hire a drag queen but I think at the time that these movies came out it was a statement in itself that just Patrick Swayze and having dated men who idolize Patrick Swayze being a uh, I think partially a drag queen but I think throughout the movie we kind of figure out that he it's a transgender woman that he's portraying that that was a statement in itself that this is not something to be feared look Patrick Swayze is doing it and he did like Roadhouse yeah and same with uh, Wesley Snipes Big oh yeah, Wesley Snipes is in that too, and uh, yeah. John Leguizamo. Yeah, and there's a little bit of crossover there too because Robin Williams is also in the beginning of Tu Wong Fu as like club owner, a gay club owner. I totally forgot that. It's so quick, and it's so like, what are you doing here? And I forget which came out first or whatever, but not that it really. Uh, I'm looking that up right now, so I'll get back to you on that. Um, <laughs> okay. When this movie came out, Nathan Lane Tu Wong was- Fu came out first. Okay. Two so Wong came out first. Yeah. But yeah, when this movie came out, Nathan Lane was not out yet. And have you yeah. seen the clips of the interview? I think it was with Oprah where she asks Nathan Lane whether he's gay or not. And Robin Williams did, like redirects the conversation. I haven't, but Kyle was telling me about it. Yes, but pretty much like he was like, so are you gay? Are you, you know, is this who you are? And Robin Williams like, wait a minute, you just became gay in the way that you said that. So are you gay? (laughs) And it completely (laughs) took the focus off of Nathan Lane having to answer that very intrusive question. I mean, it would have been such a scoop for Oprah if Nathan Lane came out on her television show. It would have been that shocker. But like, you know, because like I said, Ellen hadn't even come out yet. And that was sort of the big cultural touch point of actors being out of the closet. Yeah, that would have been scary. Which I mean, like, even when you're promoting this film, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what they were doing during this interview. But it was still, and that says everything, is that they can make the movie about it, but one of them better not be gay. Or if they are, it would be implications, to quote Dennis Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's like stupid because it's like, why does it matter if he's gay or not to like this movie or to anyone watching? Well, I wouldn't say to anyone watching this because I think it's really, you know, it's sometimes important for people to see people like them portrayed and successful. But, you know, like to the movie, to trying to sell the movie, like what does it matter? Right. Exactly. 
You're just trying to get ratings for your show. You don't care about if he's gay, if he's happy, you know, if Mm -hmm. coming out would be something that he wants to do right now. So yeah, anyways, off the soapbox. But lesson (laughs) to our our listeners, if you weren't familiar with this yet, never ask a person, especially in a public forum, what their sexual orientation is. Yeah. Even privately, it's iffy. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Unless they offer it to you or, you know, you're in a private setting and you are maybe read the room. That's, Mm -hmm. that's what I'm saying. Read Read the room. room. But do ask what their pronouns might be. Yeah. And share what yours are. Normalize pronouns. Yes. My name's Katie. She, her. And I'm Kate. She, her. There you go. It's that easy. It's that easy. But yeah, so I think, and so those are the two main characters, right? We've got uh, Robin Williams and Nathan Lane uh, playing off of each other just beautifully. But then the supporting cast, you get uh, Gene Hackman, who, by the way, um, you want to talk about real politics and fake politics colliding. Gene Hackman was actually in trouble, I believe, with the Nixon administration. Yes. Ooh, can I say this? Yes, I remember please I said go. This. Okay. So he's, I... he's playing a super conservative in this movie, but he was actually the real life enemy of a Republican president, Richard Nixon. Yeah. So there's a part in the movie uh, where he's trying to sneak out of his home and away from the paparazzi who are like hounding him because reasons. And he gets caught and he's on this ladder outside of his house and he sort of turns around and does like the Nixon sort of like peace wave thing. I'm sure, Kate, you know what I'm talking about. Oh. If you guys don't know, give it a Google. The, it, v for victory. It. It's really easy. Yeah. As he and, the White House. Yeah, I guess it is like V for victory. <laughs> it's not peace. But, you know, in real life, Gene Hackman was on a an actual list of Richard Nixon's enemies. Fun fact. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then here he goes spoofing pretty much any conservative, you know, politician at that point, which I really, yeah. I think that there's another scene and it's, I mean, the movie itself goes through the struggles that uh, Robin Williams' character Armand has with his son, uh, Val, who is a piece of shit for most of the movie, quite honestly. Uh, Val is the worst. And rewatching it, uh, I'm just reminded of how bad Val actually is. Yeah, he's not, um, he's kind of a shitty kid. And I guess like, I don't know, he's a teenager and he's young and he's definitely at an age where like he thinks his needs and wants are the most important thing, but... I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, you were saying. <laughs> but like even even his his fiance, uh, Barbara, who's Callista Flockhart, even she's like a better person in some ways. Like she's trying to help keep the ruse up, but she's also the first one to be like, no, like we need to help Albert out with his wig. You know, she she's not curling into a corner when it goes wrong. She's there trying to keep it from going wrong. Whereas Val is just, everything is a disaster and and horrible to Val. And I can't believe you did this to me, dad. But I think like there's, that is such a, a heart driven thing of the movie. I think there's one scene that kind of gets missed because it's funny, but it's not quite as funny as like the Keeleys, the Senator Keeley and his wife played by Dionne, Dionne, Diane Weist, who's amazing. Like noticing what's on Dionne the Dionne Weist. Dionne Weist. Uh, <laughs> but like noticing that there's like gay men, like men having sex on the bowls and stuff. Um, oh yeah long size of bulls that's like just funny but there's a scene where senator keely is talking to albert in full and albert's in drag at this point um pretending to be val's mother and albert's throwing out the most ridiculous conservative hyperbole like policies that they should pass so like there's like a moment where he's like oh yeah you know what penalty for abortion should be death 
well, the baby was going to die anyway. Let's kill the mother too. And there's just these really absurd things that now, like, unfortunately, almost 30 years later, we're like, oh yeah, there's a state that's actually looking at that. Conservative talking points have gotten so banana balls that it's like someone would legitimately suggest that and everyone would just be like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which which that's exactly what Keeley does. He's just, he almost, it's almost like Albert's daring him to be even more conservative in the conversation. Where as yeah. you can see, and this is why Jane, Gene Hackman's one of the all-time great actors, you can see him visibly uncomfortable being like, oh no, that's two banana balls, like you said. But, you know, I need to appear to be just as, I need to appear to be your conservative hero and to be in on this. So yeah. You've got passion for this, I can tell, you know, and like doing all the politicianing that happens that gets us into the soup. And I want to say, too, he is just absolutely besotted with Val's mother, quote, quote. Yes, I love that. I love that he's just head over heels for her and that his wife is not happy. (laughs) One of my favorite things that uh, Diane Weiss says towards the end is someone has to like me best. (laughs) Also, when she's like, I'm not dancing alone. Although that's more here. No, Gene Hackman says that. I am not dancing alone. (laughs) Gene Hackman says that. Yeah. No, she's out there working it. (laughs) And then someone hits on her. See, somebody does like her best. Yeah. Going back to like Val for a second and how he's kind of shitty. And, you know, he does kind of get called out a little bit on this and has a conversation with his father and his father sort of makes him see, hey, you are asking me to cover up who I am. And I have worked hard and gotten to a place in my life where I don't have to do that where I can be a gay man who lives with another man and be successful and have friends and family and people who care about me. And I don't have to put up with, you know, people's bigotry. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you're asking me to put all that away and hide myself. Like I was asked to hide myself by everyone in, you know, society and my life for years. You're asking me to go back to that. Mm -hmm. And like, really makes a fine point on the gravity of what Val is asking him to do and what Val doesn't seem to understand because like, you know, maybe the thing is like, it's so normalized for him, his father and Albert together, Nathan Lane's character, Albert, he doesn't realize like, I don't want to say he doesn't realize that like them being together, being in a partnership, raising a child together, isn't something that is something that makes some people like mad about and uncomfortable like I think you know he definitely is old enough to realize that but I guess he doesn't see the the asking his parent to hide himself and go back to the feelings that he felt when he essentially felt persecuted is that the word I want yeah yeah I can I can see what you're saying so like pretty much he's been steeped in it so long that this is normal for him and so there's never a time in his life where he knew his father to be closeted and to be um told he couldn't be his full self and right. so to him it's not returning to a time it's just you know putting on a coat for a day yeah um, exactly yeah you know, perfect and, that's and, a perfect way of putting on a coat for a day yeah. yeah as opposed to you know putting on a coat that's got a whole bunch of barbed wire in the lining on for a day which is what it truly would be yeah that oh my god that's perfect you're such you're a writer oh my god <laughs> um who's published darling um but you know you also but you also have like on the other side too like it's bad enough what he's doing to his father but then he also wants albert to just disappear 
He doesn't even yeah. to be there where Albert has been a fixture in his life too this entire time, but it's just too difficult. So Albert, you just go on vacation. Yeah, there's the there's no way Albert that decides. <laughs> yeah. drama. How Egyptian. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, yeah, they're like, there's no way we're going to be able to pass Albert off the straight. So he just needs to like depart the premises for the time being. And I guess probably also in Val's mind too, like you said, it's just putting on a coat for a night. Like this isn't going to be permanent. You know, we're going to come clean. We just can't come clean right now until, you know, because of the political drama that's happening outside of Callista Flockhart's family and just wanting everyone to get on board with their marriage and agree, you know, it's uh, starting marriage off on a lie is a really good way to go about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It's such 20 year old thinking where it's like, Oh, don't worry. They'll be more accepting later. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm just, that's like, the whole thing with Val being 20 and Calista Flockhart being either 18 or 19, we can never tell because her age age changes like a couple of times and them deciding they want to get married. Like this is why children should not get married to each other because the parents have way too much say. Had they waited four years, they would be fine. Um, but that's that then we wouldn't have a movie, right? So right. It's like it's a perfect hijinks movie situation. It's it's always it one of those things with comedies like this, where it's like if everyone just talked to each other, if everyone had a cell phone, or if you know this and yeah. that, you know, everything start on how this solved. movie thrives in a no cell phone world. You have one character, you have Christine Baranski, who plays Val's biological mother, mm-hmm. calling from her car phone multiple times. <laughs> Oh, yeah. One of my favorite no cell phone moments, because obviously with like the onset of cell phones and smartphones, like scriptwriters had to get a little more clever with how do we, you know, solve the problem of cell phones that could like solve a problem in a movie really quick. And in the classic great comedy, uh, timeless comedy, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. <laughs> There's a part where titular characters, Harold and Kumar are walking out the door to go get their white castle and they've gone down like the hall from their apartment. And he's like, Oh, I forgot my phone. And then they both turn around and they stare at the door and they go, "Eh, we've gone too far. And then they (laughs) proceed on and it's right at the beginning of the movie. And I'm just always like, that's genius because so many of their problems throughout the movie Mm -hmm. would have been solved if they had their cell phone with them. Mm -hmm. So that was like a perfect way to set off. Oh, we've gone too far. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, and in their mind, it's like, oh, we're just going to get White Castle and we're coming right back. Well, and, and also what a way to like characterize the characters right off and be like, well, I'm not going to walk down the hallway again for my phone. It doesn't matter yeah. that much to me. And I have things that are, are pulling my passions in another direction. Yeah. The lazy slacker stoner movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For, so, I've... I mean, like there, there's definitely, I, when we talk about like, if you could recast it today, there are things about the birdcage that would have to change, I think, to fit today. Um, uh-huh. but unfortunately we're still in such a political landscape that it would be absolutely like most of the themes would still fit just because we are in this period of time, unfortunately, where we've all gone backwards, even beyond past 1996. I would say, I think maybe we've gone backwards in like our very all or nothing thinking on politics and especially on like social issues. Like in this movie, I think like thinking from Gene Hackman's character's point of view, if he got, you know, if he essentially got caught, like, or, you know, when it comes out that 
his daughter is marrying a boy whose parents are two men. Like, oh, that's a big deal. And maybe it sets him back on his whole like family value shtick in a time where every, uh, you know, conservatives are like, well, family is one man and one woman and their kids. Like it might set him back or make the road a little harder, but it wouldn't end his political career as a conservative or as a Republican. I think now it definitely would. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But then again, like even the big drama that's happening outside of all of this, the, the wraparound, which is that one of Keeley's uh, cohorts on this panel, one mm-hmm. the loudest mouths around family values first, is found dead with a prostitute. That's not just a prostitute, but a black woman who's possibly even underage. I think I don't. I don't remember if she's underage. But I don't remember. If I she's think underage because I think a black woman. And his last words are like, "The money is on the dresser." Before he has a heart attack and dies. Yeah, yeah. The money is on the dresser. Chocolate. And if he hadn't died, like, I think back then, sure, his career might have been over. But if he hadn't died, like, I think now if we look at our former president, he would have been fine. Oh, yeah. Being caught with sex workers, I think, whether they're same sex or not, is it's something that can easily get buried. Or maybe it's just like, I I feel like there have been like, you know, rumors of, well, you know, we've had the like George, George Santos, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah in his... fact, I don't know if you saw, he he was the answer on a Jeopardy question the other day. Oh, really? Like, yeah. So when the guy said, what is George, you know, who is George Santos? Ken Jennings said, this is the only time you'll ever hear me say this, but George Santos is correct. <laughs> That's good. But yeah, anyway, <laughs> go back to George Santos, drag icon. I like seeing him in like dressed as a drag queen. It's not necessarily like, the shock of it isn't like, oh, it's a man dressing up as a lady. It's that like, you're a fucking Republican, conservative, homophobe, among other things. That yeah. man's wild. But a year over here, like dressing up as a woman, whether it's, you know, for fun or a joke or for a job or whatever. Same thing with like the rumors about Lindsey Graham having a drag persona. You know, I here's the thing, and we I think we're both on the same page. We think that drag is fabulous. Hell, I just did a solid five minutes on RuPaul's Drag Race. But like, yeah. we think drag is fabulous. People should feel comfortable doing drag if that's their expression. What we have a problem with is people who do drag and then turn around and find that the money's better on the other side to de- decry drag or to decry LGBTQIA people as the enemy when they right. themselves have either found comfort or solace or have somehow been part of that community in the past. But it does feel like, oh, well, the money's better on the other side. I can be more famous on the other side. Um, Because, you know, George Santos, you were a mediocre drag queen. I've seen the photos. Call Tyra from season two for help. But (laughs) (laughs) like, you know, and that's, that's where we had to take issue with it. I mean, we'll never like, I, I had real issue, especially when like Lady G stuff started happening with um, Lindsey Graham. The rumor started swirling around that the Trump administration had information on him as mm-hmm. a, a client named Lady G, who served, you know, uh, was going for uh, experiences with men in Washington D.C. And I didn't have a problem with the idea of him doing that because we support sex workers and the Mm -hmm. right treatment of sex workers and we support gay relationships what i had a problem with was the idea that this is a man that's made his career off of hatred 
Yeah, it's the hypocrisy. It's the hypocrisy. Yeah. Now, if he were to come out tomorrow as a, a you know loud and proud gay man, I think I would have a similar reaction as to how I had with Kevin Spacey when he decided that after the allegations came out was the perfect time to say he was gay and get and try to get the pity vote on that. Which it would it would be like, yeah, it's a little too late, my friend. What are you going to do about it now? But that's just me, that, and I don't see that happening, so I don't put too much brain power into that. I that reminds me of like on the office and. Like- like, again, this is one of those jokes that probably, like, wouldn't really fly now. It's one where, like, Kelly's in trouble and at work and she goes, I was raped. And Michael goes, Kelly, you can't claim that you were raped every time you get in trouble. Like, I'm paraphrasing, but, like, that's what that but reminds me of. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, but that's what that reminds me of. Like, well, I'm gay. Like, <laughs> Oh, and, okay. Well, no, actually, a lot of of black activists and and writers that I follow talk about this syndrome that suddenly popped up, where white people are scrambling to find a way that they're oppressed, so that if they make a yeah. mistake, like, don't worry. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry I said that, but you have to understand, I have ADHD, or but you have to understand, I'm a bisexual woman, uh, or mm-hmm. you have to understand, you know, like. I have a disability. My left eye is a different like prescription strength than my right. And so like, and those are like outlandish <laughs> things, but like, yeah, there are like, there are people that just, you know, scramble to find that one thing that will grant them pity or maybe clemency from the other side. And the mm-hmm. minute that someone calls their hypocrisy into question, they go, oh, but I thought this was the tolerant left. That's my favorite. Yeah. What happened to tolerance? You know, we're yeah. tolerant of everything except for intolerance. That's like saying, well, I'm a queer woman, so I can say the N-word because we're both minorities, right? There's a big difference between that and the N-word. And that is the John Mulaney joke goes, I'm still not saying the N-word. Yeah, the one that you are having to spell is probably the worst word. Probably worse. Yeah. So it was just, it was this very interesting, um, yeah, it's just this, it's this weird thing that happens that people started using the oppression trick as as a defense mechanism and looking at the birdcage I mean at least Val doesn't do that (laughs) yeah and then going back to the movie and the idea of family values and the fact that this came out in 1996 when gay marriage wasn't legal you didn't have a lot of married gay couples you certainly didn't find I mean you had even fewer gay couples with children you know, in the end, you see that there's not a huge difference between the two family. You have two sets of parents that are trying to do the best they can for their children. Two children that grew up like <laughs> mostly well-adjusted. They're smart. They're in college. They're successful, caring individuals trying to do better. Like even by the end, you know, Val, as shitty as he's been throughout the whole thing, he's kind of like, this is my mother, Albert. Like he refers to him as his mother. So it really. They do a really good job also of just making it very clear that Albert has been more of a mother to him than, than his actual mother, his biological mother. Yeah. Um, well, he says. Because like, her whole nice. thing is I haven't seen him in 20 years, right? She's never met him. She says, it's nice yeah. to meet you. Like he, she, it's kind of like she gave birth and then. I, you know, Armand was like, well, I'd like a son. And she was like, here you go. And then <laughs> it's been fun. Here you go. And then she goes off and she does her own thing. And if that's not even more of like, oh my God, I love that plot line. I love the fact that she has the kid. Someone takes someone, the person luckily who impregnated her wants the son, takes the child. 
and she can go off and do what she wants to do. Yeah, and they and both achieve their goals. They both achieve their dreams. It's fantastic. Yeah. And from like what you can tell, like, yeah, she has her own successful, like huge business and she's unmarried and mm -hmm. has no kids. And like, I mean, there's another, you know, thing right there that's like pretty progressive for even 1996, even for now, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah, so many, so many great things about this movie. So freaking quotable there. Have you ever seen those memes online where it's like, like movie quotes that you say on the regular that don't make any sense out of context or like people yeah, would be able to yeah, pick yeah. out one we say all the time from this movie is like, fuck the shrimp. Um, you know what my, my first always goes to, and here we go from like the dark Knight. but, mm -hmm. um, for this movie in particular, I think I would probably have to say men smear <laughs> yeah that whole scene i love that whole scene where albert is is trying to become more manly so he can be val's uncle uh at this this family meet and greet yeah and so armand is teaching him how to be more masculine and really kind of like injecting the toxic toxic masculinity into his behaviors but like he's trying to teach him how to be more masculine and so things like men smear like smearing the mustard on the bread um, and like when, when he asks Albert to walk like John Wayne and he yeah. does, and it, it's just a sight. It's just, everyone in the restaurants looking. Yeah. And I never realized John Wayne walked like that. I never realized Jane walked, John Wayne walked. Jane Wayne. Jane Wayne. That's, that's John Wayne's drag alter ego. Um, I was going to say, there's gotta be a Jane Wayne drag queen out there somewhere. Right. If not, we need to find someone who would become Jane Wayne. But also, uh, and the other one is I pierce the toast. And he starts having a meltdown. Yeah, just, you can't fall to pieces. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just so, tosses it over his shoulder and gets another piece. <laughs> there's something that happens in that movie, too, like not long after that scene where Armand gives Albert like or he signs some like legal document where he's like, what's mine is yours. Like if something happens to me mm -hmm. legally, like the club, our home, like everything belongs to you. And I was like, and that's like another thing that you don't think about. It's like legally, you know, since they aren't married, none of that would technically belong to Albert, even though Armand is exactly. essentially his husband. Like, Well, and that's why, um, especially, you know, gang marriage passed while the the people who were against it were decrying that it was somehow going to devalue the you know concept of a man and a woman getting married still doesn't make sense to me that was like a huge reason that they wanted to make sure that gay marriage was legal um and some sometimes i got halfway there with like civil unions which did allow those things but things like hospitals not allowing loved ones to see each other because they weren't technically married. So they weren't considered family. And especially if you think about the AIDS crisis in the eighties, where you had people who were in the hospital who couldn't see the most cherished person in their life because there's no marriage certificate. There's no blood relation. Yeah. Oh, that's another thing that I forgot to mention at the top. You know, this is mid nineties when AIDS was kind of still a death sentence to like people and was just sweeping through the queer community killing people and you know now it's like it's not good news but you know it's more people think of it more about living with aids than dying from aids exactly yeah we we have made 
progress, not quick enough progress, but we have made progress. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Magic Johnson. <laughs> and Elizabeth think- Taylor. Yeah. Bill Lansbury and all the other celebrities that brought us through this. And Tammy Baker and Tammy Faye Baker. And Tammy Faye Baker. You're right. God, why couldn't you leave her and take Jim? Yeah, I don't know. He's still uh, around too, isn't he? He's still around. He's not in jail. But Pat Robertson just died. So there's that. <laughs> That's what pride stands for. Yeah. Pat, Pat Robertson is dead, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I do want to, I do want to mention just one, you know, back, backstory thing to the birdcage. The director is Mike Nichols. He is prolific. He has grad, he uh, directed everything from uh, The Graduate and Silkwood, as well as uh, Working Girl and Postcards from the Edge. Uh, He did The Birdcage in 1996. One of his first movies ever was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is one of those movies where it's just nonstop dialogue and cringe, and I love it. And then he also, I think his last movie was Charlie Wilson's War, um, which had Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts in it. And you know, we love our Tom Hanks and our Julia Roberts on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, he, he was not a stranger to how to make a good movie when he made this having things like, um, you know, The Graduate and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf under his belt long before he got here. Um, But he was also married to Diane Sawyer. Oh, shit. I didn't know that. He was married to her all the way until his death. They got married in 1988 and they stayed married until he passed. Lovely. Yeah. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate, not comedies. No. Goes back to that whole thing that sometimes it takes a comedic eye to really be able to do drama well. Yeah. Well, and and you would know that just as much because one of your favorite movies also was a Mike Nichols production, production, and that's Closer. Oh, yeah. See, so good. See, that one's good too because the playwright was involved. Yeah. I don't remember. He didn't write that, did he? I don't believe so, but um, I think that he had the playwright involved for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf as well. He was it's, very it's, well like regarded as someone who would be good at taking stage to screen. Yeah, well, and yeah, there you go. What We're probably about at our time, aren't we? I think that it is probably time to wrap up. Katie and I have some good plans to get some Mediterranean food and watch some movies that uh, she and I have never seen before or introduce each other to some of our favorite movies. I have a long list that I have to decide which one I want to show her but that should yeah. in some good episodes coming up in the meantime we know that we let you down over pride month we did not do as many episodes as we wish we had but what we can we say uh it's been a busy kickoff to summer and pride lasts all year round at the slumber party so we'll definitely be talking about other lgbtqia plus movies uh, in episodes, regardless of what month it is on the calendar. Absolutely. Definitely look forward to the next year of content. We are going to have more guests on the show. We've already got some that are in conversation with us to be part of it. Um, we're looking forward to doing more movies. And as always, you can reach out to us on our Twitter feed uh, or our Instagram and give us recommendations, what you want to hear, what movies you want us to cover. Uh, if you completely disagreed with our take on something, uh, if you totally agreed and have extra thoughts, we would love to hear it. I am getting rid of my personal Twitter, however. So uh, at Katie or at SP Cinema Club. <laughs> and that's the same handle for both uh, Twitter and for Instagram. So at SP Cinema Club. 
please definitely share us with your friends, you know, help us get to that listening goal. We rely on listeners like you to help promote us and do our marketing. So, (laughs) but yeah, have a good week out there, guys. Be kind to one another and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.